It's good to be back with you again. It's been a little while. I'm going to read the sermon passage in just a second. But um, I just want to say it's good to be back and preaching again. Um, It's been a little while. I know that Will mentioned earlier that the leadership has been very merciful in this time of studying and preparing to be ordained, that they've given time to study and to prepare and take all these exams. And Lord willing, thank the Lord, it is almost done in just a couple days. And I will rejoice in that for sure. Um, but it, it, is, it really is good to be back and doing the main thing that it's all about, and that is studying and learning from God's Word together. So, that being said, then um, let's look at our passage for this evening. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. This is God's Word. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a couple days ago I had this phenomenon, which I'm sure happened to me, which I'm sure is very familiar to all of you as well. And that I was on my computer, on social media, kind of sifting through my news feed, and an article pops up that was somewhat relevant to me and interesting, so I click on the article and I read it. And um, I know you know how this goes. It kind of went that the person writing the article was um, arguing for a particular opinion on a particular issue. It doesn't really matter what the issue was here. And they gave several reasons for it, and woven in through all these reasons are kind of these refrains that's like, um, you know, I used to take that opinion over there, but then I thought about it some more, and I had these other experiences, and I was enlightened more, and now I've changed my mind and come to realize that this is really the only opinion that you can have, and that people on the other side really are still in this kind of cloud of deception, like they're being duped. I, I, I almost titled the sermon, How Not to Be Duped, but I didn't know how to spell duped, so I didn't put it in there. So. Um, but anyways, so that's how the article went, yeah, 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 click it, um, and move on, and just a couple minutes later, kind of predictably, here's another article about the exact same issue, arguing for the exact opposite position as the other article I just read. Same format, reasons how this is the only opinion that you can really have, and I used to have that opinion over there, but then I learned more, I read more, I had these experiences, and now I've seen the light, and have come to realize that this is the only opinion on this matter that you can really have. Those over there are in a cloud of deception, and they're being duped. So, this is kind of the way that you know, our lives function in a lot of ways, and that we have all kinds of competing messages with each other that contradict each other coming at us all the time. And it doesn't just happen on social media, but it happens, uh, that's an arena where I think this phenomenon is very clearly illustrated and that we all know what this is like. 
And it kind of puts us in this position where we have to make a decision as, you know, what are we going to choose? Are we going to believe this person or are we going to believe this person? You know, none of us really like to be the one deceived and unenlightened. You know, we all want to be the one that has the truth. And how do you choose? Especially in just a cloud of voices that are vying for our attention and competing with each other, how do you compete uh, with one and choose one over the other? And it's one thing when this has to do with just stuff in everyday life. It's another thing when this has um, stuff to do with the gospel. Because there are lots of messages and we have them every day. It might be a friend. It might be you know, something you read that it's the exact same situation. It's that, you know, I grew up learning this. I used to think this is true, and then I thought about it more. I had these experiences and come to realize that we can't hold that anymore. We need to change it a little bit. Or if we have this version, then we will, it'll be a much more palatable or believable form of gospel. And we have these. It kind of puts us in this situation where we have to make a choice, and we have to navigate between these. And the, the situation has a special gravity when it's in the realm of the gospel. So how do we choose? I think that a lot of times we think that this is a modern issue because of social media and what have you. But in this passage where Paul is instructing Timothy, it's actually a very more familiar situation than we would realize. I mean, he's in a situation where there are other competing voices even among those designated as God's people, that are giving different versions of the gospel. And among the congregation, they're competing with each other as that what is the more true or what is the more believable um, that people should believe. And so I think that this passage is a great place for us to go to, we can look at, and we can ask it, this question is, how do we navigate the voices that come at us, and how do we choose between them on what to follow with our lives. So here's, here's how we're going to look at this. First, we're going to look at the words of man. You can try to remember this. The words of man, they'll be characterized by Timothy's opponents. And then we're going to look at the word of God that Timothy is called to believe in. And then lastly, we'll end by looking at the hope that's contained in that word. Okay? So the words of man first, and then the word, the word of God, and then the hope that's in the word. So let's look at it. the words of man first, as illustrated by Timothy's opponents here. The first thing I want to point out is that you know we see in this in what we read is that there are people around Timothy. He's in this situation where there are people arguing with each other, saying that he's pulling some astray, and that they are talking about this. There are at least a few among these who are saying that the resurrection, as bodily resurrection, has already happened. So the first thing to notice is that the central issue here is not just the fact that they were arguing uh, per se, but the issue is that these messages that they were arguing about, um, the substance of them was very, very different. And that some of these messages are actually striking at the core of the gospel that made it the gospel in the first place. So that this is a big deal to choose between one or between one or the other. Because like in this situation with these people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, if they were to deny the resurrection, that's the bodily resurrection, a future hope of resurrection, is to deny the resurrection of Jesus, which in a sense is to undercut the foundation of what the whole gospel is built upon in the first place. 
So this is it's a very big deal. But I want us to think about, in order to understand this, it's not the case in our day, but back in Timothy's day, the idea of a bodily resurrection, of physical things, that there would be value in physical things, that part of the glorious recreation would involve physical things that God made and renewing them, was very much outside of what, in this culture, at least in some groups, would think was acceptable. As it was very common to think that physical stuff is bad, you know, the material stuff of the universe, and that truth is found by, in kind of a spiritualistic sense, kind of rising above it and getting out of it and valuing heavenly things and as much as possible to not associate with physical pleasures or the physical stuff of the universe. So the idea of a bodily resurrection being the hope that's in the gospel was simply, at least in some circles in this time, was not a palatable message. It was a message that kind of graded against what the community would deem acceptable and would deem something that's believable or even deem something that's good news in the first place. So in order to believe this, it's an attempt to take the gospel and to twist it in a way that is palatable and that's acceptable to the community. And what does Paul take of this? His his assessment of it is that he, in the first place, he pits these against the word of truth. So notice in the passage we have a singular word of truth on the one side. And on the other side, we have these multiple words that are coming from their opponents. So Paul is making a distinction here in that the origin of the two is different. One of them comes from the truth, and one of them is opposite of that, that these are opinions that are coming from people themselves. That the people themselves are giving a final approval on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, taking what we like, throwing out the rest. So in a sense, these are just the words of man, that they're not divine words that are given from God, that twisting them actually makes them a man-centered gospel that goes no further than people's opinions. So Paul is saying is that these are just words. Like they're not founded upon anything in particular. They're just words. It's just hot air that's blowing around. It's just your news feed that's blowing up with opinions here, there, and wherever. They're just opinions. And he brings this out further when he refers to them. You see in verse 16, he calls them irreverent babble. Um, which is a very interesting way he describes it. The word he uses for irreverent, it basically means to make opinions on things that don't account for transcendent values at all. So the opinions, they're just opinions that are formed on what's immediately accessible. If you look it up in the dictionary or something, it, it, it uses the example of like old wives' tales, or just the tales that people would sit around and spread around um, amongst them. And it's like, it reminded me of this. Y'all remember the movie October Sky? I used to watch it when I was growing up. It's about a kid in coal mines in West Virginia. My dad's from West Virginia, so we watched it a fair amount. Um, and he was, you know, coal mining family, but he was able to study hard and was really interested in rockets and was able to um, get a job at NASA. But there's this one scene in there where all the coal miners are gathered out. It's in the 1950s, the time when the Sputnik Russian um, satellite, you know, went overhead. And they're all standing there watching it, and they have no idea 
what the Russians' purposes are, what they're doing. But they're all kind of gathered around and they're saying things like, you know what I think? I think they're up there spying on us. That's what they're doing. That's why they sent this thing up there. They're like, you know what I think? I think they're going to bomb us. That's what they're going to do. You know, you know what I think? I think this. So this is a picture that Paul is giving us of just the nature of these words that come from man is that they're just opinions. When the source is man, the source is not from anything transcendent outside of this experience. When the, even when God's message is twisted to make it palatable to human beings such that people are the final authority, all that it becomes are words. It becomes something that doesn't have any substance beyond the words themselves. They're just opinions. And I think we know from experience that opinions are the one thing that we are never short of and the one thing that never take a rest and are never satisfied. And our news feeds, they show this quite clearly. And so what Paul is telling Timothy here is that you know, if this is the case, if it's just opinions, if there's no higher authority here, all you can be left with is one opinion vying for authority over the other opinion being more convincing than the other. It's just argument and fight. Because even if you were to find peace in one particular opinion, there's always another opinion that's just waiting to come up to be different than the one last time. There's always another louder voice who's just waiting for supremacy in the situation. We can do this in several ways. I think a lot of us, we can treat the Bible like kind of a racist drunk uncle that you have at a party. You know, think of Saturday Night Live. You know, we kind of some interesting stories, stuff to talk about, but then says some stuff that is not acceptable. And so we'll just, as soon as it starts talking about that, then we'll just, you know, send him off to another room by himself. Um, And we can actually censor the gospel in that way. There's some stuff that's not palatable and we know is not sociable, and so we keep it, you know, on the shelf out there, and we end up with being the final approvers of what is true and what is not true, which is not the gospel. It's a man-centered gospel. And it would be the same if we did the opposite. If we were to add to it, if we were to make it say things that it doesn't actually say in order for us to gain more control, it would still be just the words of man without any real substance. So, Timothy has this one option on one side. We have the words of man, which he's saying are not substantive, they're not grounded in anything. We could take that choice for immediate you know, pleasure or peace, but in the long term, this doesn't really do any good. So what's the other option? Do we have another option? And that's this. And these would be the words of God. Moving on to the second point here. And Paul's describing something different from all the messages that are competing with Timothy all around him. There's one that is utterly different from all of the others. And this is the word of truth that he talks about that he instructs Timothy to handle rightly in verse 15. And the first, just this word of truth, that it is singular in the first place, and is labeled the truth, which Paul makes very different from the other words, and that this is something that is immovable, and that is constant, it's not debatable, it's not changeable, it's not editable. I guess the truth is the only one. 
But there's also, and more significantly than this, if you look at all these ways that Paul describes it, like in verse 14, he tells Timothy to charge them before God, not to quarrel. He's, Paul tells Timothy to present himself before God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be, the shame, to be ashamed. What he's saying is that this truth actually comes from God himself. It's not something that was invented by man like the other opinions are. But this is something that comes from God. God has the final say on it. It is God who is the one who approves and disapproves what is in line with the truth and what is not in line with the truth. It is, it is utterly distinct from all of the others. But there's an implication that we have here that we, that, to deal with. And that this passage is... It brings a measure of comfort, but it also brings a strong measure of warning. And that if this is the Word of God, if there's only one, if it comes from God Himself, then it means how it is handled is not just a cognitive exercise, but is personal. The way God's Word is handled is actually personal to God Himself. I mean, that is a sobering thought to think about. I mean, even more so when we look at how Paul illustrates this point, which he does in verse 19. You might wonder why we read from that passage from Numbers chapter 16. That sounded a little odd. It's because this passage is referenced in that Paul uses the Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16 as an illustration for what he's saying. In verse 19 of 2 Timothy, he says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, that the Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That these, these are allusions that Paul is making to this story in Romans chapter 16 that, is, that Timothy in particular would pick up on. And so this is an illustration that Paul is using to make his point. And that in number 16, we just read the story that God gave His people His Word to guide them, and He established Moses as um, the leader of the people. And this is all given from God. But then we see what happens is that this Korah and his entourage, they come up and they say, I've got a better idea. Like, we are all holy. That means we all belong to God's people, just like Moses. So why don't we... Um, spread around some of this authority and some of this leading and we all can kind of share in this together, wouldn't that be a better idea? So it's a reinterpretation what they were doing of the message that God had given. But it came with grave consequences and that in this story, then God this was an offense that was personal to God. That going against His word it was not something that could be taken lightly, but it would be something that was of utmost gravity and utmost weight. So Paul is giving Timothy here, he's using this in a sense to illustrate that handling the word of truth rightly is not just a small deal. It's not something that um, is neutral and it's not something that's cognitive, but this is something that is personal for those that belong to Christ as teachers who are handling His gospel, that the way that is handled is personal to Him. Um, And I will admit to you, as somebody who's tasked to teach the Word of God, 
this is a very sobering idea and distinction that Paul is making here. And even as somebody who is called to live by the Word of God in everything, in every single aspect of life, this is equally as a sobering of a reality that there, there is a difference between what is against God's Word and what is in line with God's Word. And this call to identify like with Moses and to submit before him and his word is a very, very weighty task. And so where does that leave us? You know, in the midst of this, is there hope for those of us who are finite people? I mean, even just look at your newsfeed and look at all the opinions, even about the Bible and what it says and how to follow it. I mean... What do we do there? I mean, if we don't, you know, this, this does not bode well for humanity. What's the hope? It's the hope for people like us. And the hope is this. In verse 19, when Paul set this up, he says, in opposition to what Hymenaeus and Philetus said, he says, despite all this, God's firm foundation stands. And this is an allusion to a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which says this, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. The cornerstone. This language familiar to you, it might be familiar to you um, if you've grown up in the church. The cornerstone, what Paul is referring Timothy to is essentially is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this whole faith is founded upon. That we can't think of this in any way outside of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for his people. Otherwise, we would be stuck in an incredibly difficult position. On the one side, we have just the words of man, which reduces to argument, and they're not based on anything and whatever. But on the other side, we might have been given a word of God that is the truth, but we can't really keep that. I mean, we're too finite. I mean, even sometimes we go against it even when we know better. I mean, that if, if we don't understand this in the context of who Jesus is and what he did, then the choice is pointless. But because we have been given Christ and because He is the foundation of our faith, everything changes. And how does that change? And that, remember, the story begins when God sent Christ to us, we didn't understand Him fully. We didn't understand His Word fully. We were in no way in line with what He had revealed and what He had been given, but Christ sent Him anyways. He sent Christ for people who were in rebellion against them, who didn't understand God through creation, who didn't understand God through what He has revealed. Christ is a gift in the first and foremost place for people who don't measure up to Him. So when we think about this, and we see this foundation of what our faith is built upon, it is not built upon getting everything perfect in every detail. It is built on more what Christ did for us and what we can do with Him. So when we see it in that sense, that being in line with His truth is to be in line with Christ and to be approved 
through Christ, not in of ourselves, that we are left in this a very different position how we approach God's Word. First of all, we can trust it. The God that would do this when we were lost, who would give us what we didn't even know what we needed in the first place, is not the kind of God who is going to be deceptive in His Word. It is not the kind of God who is going to hold back information on what we think we need to navigate the aspects of you know the difficult aspects of life. And He is not the kind of God who is going to hold His Word over your head to see if you measure up perfectly before He is going to look on you with approval. That is because we what we have been given in Jesus. Because God gave us Jesus, we approach His Word as those that are loved and who are cherished as sinners who, Christ, who God sent His Son to redeem. This is our posture before the Father. But in addition, it goes beyond this. Not only can we trust that, but we can also trust the effectiveness of His Word. I mean, if you're sitting there on your, new, on your computer and your feed is going and you get this article that is very confusing and that is challenging things that you don't know how to answer and you feel very inadequate, you don't feel like you understand, you don't feel like you can respond, you don't feel like you know exactly how to handle this situation. Or maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a friend who's coming up to you and is challenging what you believe and saying that this is, you know, this is untenable, you just can't hold these positions, and you just don't know what to do, and you don't know what to say. What do you do in that point? Because of Christ, when we see Christ, we see that what God has given and what He is doing, that this is not just bare information, but this is a living person, the God-man of Jesus, who rules over all things, who was given, who perfectly accomplished the Father's will and who reigns over all things and is working all things out of love for His people. There's a tremendous level of confidence in that. Even when you don't know what to decide, even when things are confusing, it does not mean that Christ is off of His throne and that He is unable to work in the world and through His Word. As the tremendous promise we have in Christ. But, despite these things, as good news for those who belong to Him, we have to take from this the call that Paul is calling Timothy to. And that there is not, a, there is, it matters who we identify with. There are tremendous blessings for those who belong to Christ and who identify with Him. But this is also an invitation to who we identify with. Do we identify with ourselves as the final authority and the final approver of what we deem as right and what we deem as good? Or are we willing because of Christ and through Christ, to let go and to let Him decide, to let Him call, and to stand in union with Him and with no other word of the gospel. This is the call to us. Let's pray together. Dear Father, this, these truths we see in this word, this is a very difficult um, thing to wrap our minds around. And the more we look and the more messages we have that are around us, the smaller often our minds feel. And we can be very afraid. I pray that you would turn our eyes toward Jesus. You would allow us to see the security we have in belonging to him. 
and the security that we have in your guidance of all things. And I pray that you would enable us in our hearts to turn and to identify with you and the gift that you have given alone and not be swayed by the other messages that come after us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.